and infected Russia, a plague bearing Russia, a Russia of armed hordes not only smiting with bayonet and with cannon, but accomplished and preceded by swarms of typhus bearing vermin, which slew the bodies of men and political doctrines which destroyed the health and even the souls of nations. Winston Churchill, The Aftermath, 1929. Welcome to the Politics of Pandemics, episode 29, The Bubonic Rus. Disease and epidemics are part of human life, and chance infections or outbreaks have changed the course of humanity in dramatic ways. A city being waylaid by disease, a king or a leader who died on the cusp of great victory. Diseases have evolved with us, change with us, and as our technology progresses and changes, so have the ways humanity has reacted to diseases and epidemics. As a sort of aside to the usual podcast subjects, I'm going to look at the reaction to disease and human health, primarily through the lens of one country, Russia. A couple of caveats then. When I say Russia, in episodes set prior to 1991, I do include the territories historically under the Russian Empire, as well as the USSR, but are now independent nations of their own. As I am writing this, Russia has been trying to invade Ukraine for about four months now, with no end in sight, and a rumor that came out at the start of this so-called special military operation will be included at the end of this short series. I think the modern reaction of Russia to COVID-19 has its roots in the Soviet reactions to other disasters, so that is what I will attempt to dissect as we go through Russia's history. But first, I think it'll be fun to go back even further back in time, just to see the different ways disease has shaped Russia's history, and how the Russian Empire and later the Soviet Union has reacted to different outbreaks. Russia is not unique in having endured deadly outbreaks throughout its long history. Despite the endearing joke about Russia's history being a sequence of never-ending misery. Still, as our current pandemic demonstrates, just because they're not unique doesn't mean they don't screw up the reactions anyway. And when we're talking about medieval history, we need to talk about the plague, the Black Death, Yersinia pestis, whatever you want to call it, and how it's shaped Russia's history over the past 700 years. discussion would be complete without the biggest one of them all, the Black Death. Wiping out up to 60% of Europe's population at the time, it shook the foundations of the continent to its core and led indirectly to many of the societal changes of the following centuries. The bacterium that has been cited as the most likely cause, Yersinia pestis, hitched a ride on the fleas that infect rats 
as rodents traveled trade routes on land and over sea with the help of a few merchants. And recent evidence suggests that the disease may have originated on the shores of the Caspian Sea by what is today southwestern Russia, though this is not exactly certain. What is known is that by 1945, the Black Death had already begun to devastate the region and contribute to the fall of one of the most ferocious empires in the world. People have been inhabiting the flat expanse of the Eastern European Plain for thousands of years by then. That vast, fertile area north of the Caspian and Black Seas, where Russia's longest river, the Volga, runs through. By the middle of the 14th century, that area was ruled by the descendants of Genghis Khan, a splinter faction who had recently converted to Islam, whom we now today know as the Golden Horde. Having defeated the Kievan Rus just 100 years back, the Golden Horde had experienced the Golden Age, no pun intended, under the rule of Uzbek Khan, who declared Islam the state religion and under whom the region experienced a relative degree of peace and urbanization. Until the Black Death began to eat away at the population of the Mongols and the people of the Volga region. While numbers and sources are hard to come by, to quote one source, Ibn al-Wardi writes that when the outbreak of disease arrived in the land of Uzbek, or Bilad Uzbek, in October to November of 1346, the villages and towns were emptied of their inhabitants. Most sources I found regarding the relationship between the Black Death and the decline of the Golden Horde seem to present that link as settled fact, but maybe the actual evidence is not public to me. They cite devastated communities, a lower tax base, emptied cities, and a relationship between the height of the plague and a string of incompetent rulers and civil wars that preceded the Golden Horde's slow but eventual disintegration in the early 14th century, all of which can be circumstantially, but not definitively, attributed to the Black Death. What is certain, what is certain is, by then, the Horde was suffering from outbreaks of the plague, and in one of the earliest known examples of biological warfare, the Mongols were said to have deliberately used the plague to devastate their enemies during a siege. Kaffa is a settlement in what is today Crimea, by the Black Sea, purchased by Genoese traders in the late 13th century. The port city grew to become one of the biggest culturally diverse ports in the region, most famously for housing the biggest slave markets. Whatever the reason, by 1347, the Golden Horde had laid siege to the city, not for the first time. At the same time this was happening, as mentioned, the armies of the Golden Horde and its allies were falling to the plague, enough so that the loss of its peoples threatened to break the besieging armies. I'm going to quote extensively from Uli Shamiloglu, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Quote, Unexpectedly, thousands of Tatar soldiers began to die with the sudden swelling of the armpit or groin, followed by a fever. Although the Tatar soldiers soon abandoned their siege, they began to place the corpses into catapults and launch the bodies of their comrades who had fallen victim to the disease into the Genoese fortress of Kaffa. The Italians tried to dump as many of the bodies as possible into the Black Sea, 
but the rotting corpses filled the air with a stench and poisoned the water supply. Through their strong resistance, and perhaps due to the weakened state of the blockading army, the Genoese were able to lift the siege. Many Genoese then fled to Constantinople, taking the infection with them. It is a famous story that many cite as the origin of the Black Death in Europe, but it is likely not the actual cause. Trade was common between the Muslim and Christian worlds, both on land and on sea. The spread of the disease, via its rat and flea hosts, would be easy to track through the years, and indeed, you can see the devastation move east to west in a relatively uniform fashion instead of originating from Italian ports as you would expect if those traders from Kaffa brought the disease in. We can also assume that the devastation experienced by Europe, which is much better documented, is mirrored in the urban areas and settlements in far eastern Europe. As the Golden Horde began to decline and shrink due to wars against its former vassals, Travelers and traders report of abandoned cities, once home to thousands but now completely quiet, possibly due to the plague or other forms of depopulation and devastation. By the 15th century, the Golden Horde was but a shadow of its former self, and its vassal states began to wage wars for its independence and supremacy. Its gradual fall coincided with the rise of one of its former vassal states, the Grand Duchy of Moscow a principality along the Volga that would turn into the Tsardom of Russia in 1547 when Ivan IV, or Ivan the Terrible, crowned himself Tsar. Despite sounding like a scary, distant monster of the past, the bubonic plague never really went away. Even today, we still see a couple hundred cases a year in countries like Madagascar and Peru. In the Middle Ages up to roughly the modern age, outbreaks of the plague would occur across Europe and Asia, killing thousands in major population centers before burning itself out. Russian cities would see regular outbreaks, just like any other area, some more devastating and impactful than others. So, let's look at one of them. The 1654 outbreak in Moscow, and how it almost jeopardized the war effort by killing an estimated 700,000 people. 1654 marked the beginning of the Russo-Polish War conflict that would mark the beginning of Russia's status as a great power, but also the time Poland ceased to exist. Well, one of the times, and not entirely due to Russia's fault. But that same year saw Moscow practically emptied by a wave of plague hitting the city that same summer. Tsar Alexis had just left the city to fight in Smolensk, the first great siege of the war. At home, though, the plague came quickly and without warning. As it became clear that a devastating plague was occurring, the rich and the able fled the city for the suburbs and the outskirts. This had two effects. One, they spread the plague to all of central Russia. And two, because most of those who fled were noblemen and the authorities, the city of Moscow was left to anarchy. 
I will be taking a lot of the section from a couple of articles from Russia Beyond. And here is a quote they have from Patriarch Macarius III of Antioch. Quote, The once crowded streets became deserted. Dogs and pigs devoured the dead and went wild. So no one dared to venture out alone for fear of being gnawed to death. The plague ate through the population, and by the fall of that year, quarantine measures were enacted to slow the spread of the outbreak. But by then, Moscow was already a lost cause. Most of the authorities who would have manned any checkpoints had fled or died. Across the empire, guards manned checkpoints to slow the spread of plague. This was most effective on the Western Front, where the war, specifically the Siege of Smolensk, was occurring. Quote, there, behind a quarantine line, were the Tsar himself and the army, and the quarantine was at its strictest. It comprised several cordons, and no one with the infection managed to get into the area where the army was stationed. Even though the people at the time had no knowledge of bacterial infections, the quarantine measures did protect the Western army from the outbreak happening in the center of the empire. Even the coins used to pay the troops were washed before they were distributed. And while the loss of people in central Russia did cause disruptions in wartime logistics, the Russo-Polish wars would turn out to be a great triumph for Alexis, including the siege of Smolensk. As his army marched through the Western Front, Tsar Alexis continued to employ extraordinary measures against the plague. He was a very religious man, and did see the plague as a punishment from God, was but was not so pious as to rely solely on prayer and idols. In one story, he had the entire road fumigated with firewood before he marched through it. Alexis and his army had stayed safe from the plague, likely due to the strict quarantine measures. But in central Russia, especially in Moscow, the measures were too little too late, and too easily circumvented with a little coin. The nobleman and the able had long fled Moscow before any quarantine was implemented, and the winter saw further smaller outbreaks on the outskirts of Russia. By the time Tsar Alexis returned to Moscow in February 1655, after much reconnaissance and delay, the city was gone. The Kremlin's Baskaya Tower suffered a fire which caused the bell to fall with no one to put it out or repair it, and the clock had stopped. Pristine, untouched snow lay on the streets, only swept away to accommodate the Tsar. Alexis, only 26 at the time, had returned from military triumph to an empty city. Moscow would be rebuilt, and Alexis would prove himself to be a great military leader. But over his life, he would be wary of future outbreaks, resorting to measures like buying narwhal tusks, or unicorn horns as he believed, to protect himself against future diseases. Fast forward over 100 years to the reign of Catherine the Great. Russia had only grown in size and stature in the interim, transforming during the reign of Peter the Great from a sardom to a true empire. Russia, 
did this consistently through war, sending its vast armies across the plains to fight both the European nations as well as the Muslim ones down south. When Peter the Great fought the Great Northern War against Sweden in the early 18th century, he conquered the fortress of Nyenschatz and the city of Nyen, surrounding the Swedish garrison. That area, situated on the Baltic Sea, would be where Peter would set up St. Petersburg. The strategically located city would become the Russian Empire's new capital, leaving Moscow a ghost of its former self while Russia enjoyed its new fortress on the Baltics. Catherine's life story is as incredible as it is fantastical, but in some respects, she is like many Russian Tsars in that she sent Russia's vast army to far-flung places, fighting multiple wars, which continued Russia's growth as a great power of Europe. One of those wars was a years-long excursion with the Ottomans, the Russo-Turkish War. The reasons and reality of the war one can read elsewhere, but for our purposes, the war is the reason a number of Russian troops found themselves garrisoned in Foksani over 1770, where modern-day Moldova is. There, as in many places in Russia, the plague was endemic. But while the Russian troops were succumbing to the plague, news of the outbreak did not seem to face Catherine. The story was that Catherine wrote to the famous writer Voltaire at the time of personal friend, quote, in spring, those killed by the plague will resurrect for the fighting. The commander at the time, Lieutenant General Christopher von Stufflin, sent multiple letters to the Crown but received no reply, and took no actions until several months into the plague. Plague sufferers were not even isolated from other patients, which exacerbated the spread of the disease. Von Stufflin would succumb to the plague himself in May. It was only until August that quarantine measures between Moldova and the rest of the empire would be enacted. But the tension of suspected cases lasted only a few days at most, sometimes just a few hours. The quarantine measures came up against wartime logistics, and the need to feed the war machine in the Baltics won out. These lax measures are especially baffling considering that Catherine herself was a very learned woman. She had even been inoculated against smallpox just two years ago. 30 years before Edward Jenner even invented the smallpox vaccine. And medical quarantines had been in place for a very long time. Yet the quarantine measures were kept lax, and for some reason, Catherine herself refused to acknowledge the existence of the plague, even as it began to appear outside of the battlefront, in places like Poland. As a result of this public refusal, for much of 1770, Officials often provided rosier pictures of the outbreak to the central government than in reality, in order to avoid looking like they were undermining Catherine's rule. Inevitably, cases of the plague would begin to appear in Moscow itself. As mentioned, by 1771, Moscow had lost its status as the capital of Russia and suffered a decline in population but also in infrastructure. While the glistening city of St. Petersburg represented Russia's ability to match or even surpass its European counterparts, Moscow backslided into an industrial hellhole. It was still a pretty populated city with lots of industry, but without the services that urban areas need not to devolve into a sticky mess. The cities were allegedly full of waste from slaughterhouses, industrial production, 
and of course the people that lived there. It created the perfect environment for disease. And while the prevailing theory of the disease at the time was miasma or foul smells, they weren't all that far off and some measures were made to deal with the waste and further pollution of the river, but it clearly wasn't enough when the plague hit in late 1770. The story goes that the plague was first detected in Moscow in November of that year. But quoting from a paper by Alexander Malekishlivili, human distrust caused a critical delay in isolating and treating the cases of plague that appeared in the city. Quote, On December 21, 1770, the chief physician of the Moscow General Hospital, Dr. A. F. Shafonsky, correctly diagnosed bubonic plague and promptly reported this alarming finding to A. Rinder, a German doctor who was in charge of overseeing all public health services in the city, but Rinder mistrusted the judgment of the Russian doctor and ignored his report, an action that the renowned Russian medical historian Y. A. Shestovich later called a fatal mistake that contributed to the spread of the disease. The continued rivalry between Shafonsky and Render delayed continued efforts to contain the outbreak over 1771. But another factor, similar to the previous outbreak we talked about, was that most nobility and rich folk had fled the city as the outbreak grew worse. Amongst that eventually fled was Moscow's governor general, Peter Soltikov, who turned out to be even less able to manage the crisis. Catherine, at least privately, recognized the growing threat of plague in the country and wrote to Soltikov about it. But remember how Russian officials would avoid telling the truth about the plague to Catherine as to not incur her wrath? Soltikov was one of those people, a loyal soldier to the Tsarina who burned treasonous books at her behest just a few years back. In February 1771, he wrote to Catherine, All danger from the infectious disease is over, despite the increasing number of cases in his city. Catherine, to her credit, ignored him and imposed quarantine measures on Moscow, keeping the city on lockdown. But within the city walls, the outbreaks continued to rage. So Seltikov, and along with many noblemen and about three-quarters of the city's population, fled. By September... Tens of thousands were dying a month, and corpses were lining the streets. The wanton disposal of the dead is due to the authorities essentially destroying the houses of plague victims in an effort to control the spread. So the people hid or threw their relatives' bodies away in an attempt to prevent such a fate. Convicts were left to pick up the dead, but many just died themselves. The authorities imposed more and more restrictions as the outbreak wore on, closing markets, bathhouses, and putting up ever more checkpoints to restrict movement. After months of futile measures, with no work and with death and disease constantly around them, Moscow erupted in riots. Moscovites gathered on the Red Square on the 15th of September 1771 at the Ring of the Bell. Rumors had circulated that a certain icon of the Virgin Mary would rid the city of the hell they were in if they could just get to it and hang it over the city gates. The Archbishop Ambrose of Moscow took it upon himself to disperse the crowd gathering to worship, 
mainly as a quarantine measure, but this action was instead cited as the cause for the riots. Violence erupted. Ambrose fled, but the next day he was killed when the Shadoff Monastery where he was living in was overrun by the mob. The church wasn't the only place that the rioters looted during the multi-day chaos, as other churches and houses of the rich were ransacked. It took General Peter Europkin 10,000 troops to subdue the rioters. 100 people died in an immediate battle, and several hundred more were put to death in subsequent trials. Even the bell's tongue was cut at the behest of Catherine. But after this harsh crackdown, Catherine sent Grigory Orlov to Moscow to rebuild the city and manage the plague situation, which he apparently did successfully. He lightened the harsh measures against the plague while providing the people of Moscow with food and assistance, which went a long way to pacifying the people. He outright paid anyone who submitted to a voluntary quarantine, as well as rewards for reporting illegal disposing or hiding of infected peoples and bodies. The measures Orlov set to control the spread of plague was more effective, including several public work programs to improve the hygiene situation, though it was certainly helped by the onset of winter. Catherine called Grigory Orlov the man who saved Moscow, though by then, an estimated 200,000 people had died by the time the plague was declared over in April 1772. Obviously, Russia has had many other outbreaks of plague through its long history. And while severe outbreaks of plague have become rare and less destructive by the 20th century, it was by no means completely gone. At the same time, improvements in medical science and technology in both the Western and Russian worlds meant that, for the first time, Scientists and world leaders began to dream of truly eliminating these destructive and deadly diseases which have haunted all of human history. We know a few of these success stories in the history of medicine, like with smallpox, but history is littered with less than successful attempts at eradication. Russia's attempt at eliminating the plague and other diseases from its borders over the 20th century falls somewhere in between, depending on how you look at it. Officially, according to scant few documents, the system is called anti-plague, in response to such outbreaks in Russia. The roots of the system date back to the founding of the Imperial Institute of Experimental Medicine in 1890, an institute most famous for being Ivan Pavlov's base of operations, but also where the first anti-plague studies were conducted. Despite the name, the plague research facility in the institute was tasked with studying the causes of and treatments for any number of highly infectious diseases, not just the plague. Rosinia pestis was discovered by French bacteriologist Alexandre Yersin just a few years later, and in response, Tsar Nicholas II established a special commission for the prevention of and fight against plague. This led to the creation of what was known as the Plague Fort, where an old island fort Fort Alexander, was converted into an isolated research laboratory for the purposes of studying the plague. It remained active until the collapse of the Tsardom. 
The Soviets who took over in the wake of the October Revolution would continue the work of the anti-plague system, which eventually developed into a more robust system than the one their predecessors had. Part of these measures were to create an extensive network of monitoring stations and laboratories to identify and control any outbreak of disease, like plague, across the vast country. But more importantly, Russia employed its most abundant resource in the fight to eliminate plague, people. Tens of thousands of Russians were employed to poison the rats that were a known vector of diseases. They went after the fleas as well, mixing insecticide with the rat poison, and eventually employing DDT over vast tracts of land to the detriment of the poorly protected people and the land. After which, the vegetation was burned and the land plowed to rid the rats of their food and shelter. The goal? To completely eliminate plague and its carriers. Officially, as the Soviets boasted, the USSR would not see a single case of the plague since 1928. But reality is of course different, as later sources would report that occasional instances of the plague were still happening here and there up to the 80s. Like many things in Soviet Russia, the authorities there were reluctant to admit failure to the central government, and this included the admission that they failed to eliminate the disease through their scorched earth policies. Quoting Sonia ben Oregon warmly a biodefense researcher now at George Mason University, local authorities would say it's eradicated or we don't have an outbreak. Because they ignored the outbreak, it would spread to other republics of the Soviet Union. Authorities now believe that, despite these efforts, plague still exists in the vast plains of the former communist sphere, hiding amongst their animal hosts. Occasional cases still show up, though nowhere near the level of the Black Death or even the small outbreaks of the 19th century. After the death of Stalin, the anti-plague system switched from eradication to prevention, doing the best they can to prevent rampant outbreaks of plagues and other diseases rather than fully eliminating it simply because the latter had been deemed impossible. The anti-plague system also changed in another significant way. The research and knowledge was used in the development of the Soviet's biological weapons program. During the Cold War, the AP network was increasingly integrated with the military, either with military personnel in key positions or just projects within the network, or just having facilities outright converted into military institutions. The AP system went from being a public health system to a military project, and would remain that way until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Diseases have shaped Russia's history as it has any country, and Russian leaders have tried to implement any number of methods to controlling the historical plague outbreaks to varying degrees of success. With an empire as large as Russia's, logistics are the lifeblood of the state, and checkpoints as a result of disease have a way of disrupting that lifeblood. People suffer and the nobles run in times of crisis, and lower level officials fear the wrath of the central government, so they hide the truth. In a way, very little has changed. 
Plague has become less of a problem in the modern age due to advances in medical technology and sanitation. However, as one disease fades into history, another begins to become more prominent, influenza. While nowhere near as fatal as the bubonic plague, influenza viruses have a habit of spreading incredibly fast. And if it infects enough people, it can still cause a lot of deaths. In 1887, a strain known as the Russian flu began to spread across Europe just as the continent was on the cusp of a great explosion in print media and tabloid culture. So, next week, we will explore why this 1887 outbreak was known as the first media outbreak. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please message me on Twitter at polypandemicpod. I also have a Patreon now, which you can help support the show at polypandemicpod. No member rewards planned yet, but I will thank you at the end of the show if you do contribute. Regardless, I would like to hear from you, your story of dealing with this pandemic or any disease, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you would like me to look into. I apologize once again for my mistakes, truncations, and pronunciation errors I've made in the preceding episode. And finally, get boosted, wash your hands, and always be critical of any information you consume, including this podcast.